So, um, like I said, my name is Brian, and I um, just want to give you another warm welcome to come along uh, for coming along, um, especially if you know the EU is new for you and you haven't engaged with Jesus before. We really love in the EU just reading the Bible together, trying to wrestle with God. And we, we love it when people are just investigating and trying to check things out. Ask all your questions that you want. I really hope that we have time for Q&A at the end. And um, yeah, let's get into it. Uh, as you might have been able to tell from the story that I um, gave just before, you know, I come from a family background that really, um, really values a particular set of things. We really like um, the sciences. We like mathematics. We like... Um, optimization and efficiency. And I really do think that that is something that drives our world a lot of the time. Um, the society that we live in really values competition. We really value um, making things happen quickly and well and for the least cost possible. And I wonder if you might resonate with that as well. There's a couple of things that if you're in that frame of mind that just don't really make a lot of sense. I'll give you a couple that um, that were true for me. Uh, one thing that doesn't make sense is buying flowers, right? So uh, when I was dating my wife, she would, you know, she likes flowers. Um, just think, I don't understand them. You buy the flowers, they're like already dead by the time you buy them. You put them in a vase, they last for two weeks, maybe three if you're lucky. And then what do they do? They just sort of sit there and die. Um, doesn't really make a lot of sense to buy flowers if you're, um, you know, trying to work out what value do I get from this. Um, and another thing that doesn't make sense is art. You know, art is, you know, like, uh, yes, it takes a lot of skill to do painting or drawing or whatever, but what does it do? It doesn't, like, it, it, it's like it's there to look at on the wall. And it feels like, you know, it's something that is a puzzle uh, to someone like me who's a boy, you know, who doesn't like flowers and an engineer who doesn't understand art. And, uh, and so much of our society is like this because you know, we, are, we are driven to optimization, to efficiency, to trying to get the most of our money, and we care a lot about waste, therefore. And the question that we're asking today is, can waste be good? Is there a situation, are there ways in which we can see something as wasteful and still it's Good. And the way that I want to explore this is by telling you three different Bible stories from Jesus' life. Now, the first story that I want to tell you is from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus and his friends, his disciples, they're invited to a wedding. And we're told that at this wedding, you know, everyone's having a good time. But his mother, who's also at the wedding, uh, comes up to him and says, they have no more wine. Now, in that culture, a wedding celebration could go on for a week, and it was very embarrassing to run out of wine. It's like running out of toilet paper. You know, it's not something that you ever want to happen, especially not when you have lots of very important guests around. It was a problem. I mean, not a life and death situation, but still a problem. Jesus says to his mother, what do you want me to do about it? Actually, he says, what is that to you and to me? Uh, my hour is not, has not yet come. So, uh, but his mother still believes that he can do something about it. So she says to the servants who were there, do whatever he tells you. And Jesus gives them an instruction. He says, there's, nearby there are these stone water jars. We're told that they're used for ceremonial washing. Now, if you're a Jew in the first century, there's a lot of laws that require you to be 
clean and to clean the utensils and the other things, ritual um, uh, utensils that you use. And so that there's water that's set aside for that kind of washing. Um, they would call it living water if it came from a stream or from a um, from a well. And they would, and if you weren't very close to that, then you'd store that water, clean water, into these big jars. Each jar would take, you know, almost maybe a hundred liters. So it's they're big, um, and they would use these to store the water for their ritual cleansing, which they do all the time. Now there's six of them. And Jesus says, fill up those water jars. And so it's not a small task to fill up 600 liters worth of water. The servants go and do it. It's probably going to take a little time. They come back and Jesus says, take some of the water and give it to the master of the banquet, like the head waiter at the wedding. And so they take a cup, they bring it to the head waiter, and he tastes the water that's been turned into wine. And he's so struck by what he tastes that he, and he, does, not, he does not know where this wine has come from. But um, he, he calls the bridegroom over and he says, look, everyone else, they serve the good wine first and wait, you know, when everyone's a bit tipsy, they bring out the cheap stuff. You have saved the best until now. What Jesus has done at this wedding is really remarkable. He's not just provided enough for the people who are there. He's made 600 liters, you know. He's provided basically a thousand bottles of wine for the people at this wedding who are probably already a bit tipsy. Like, it's a bit over the top. It's, it's extravagant and lavish in a way that we would call wasteful. He's not optimizing. He's not trying to calculate what's going to be a good fit for the number of people who are there. Now, why does this story make us rethink waste? Well, at least it makes us rethink who Jesus is. Because a lot of us, you know, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, you take life really seriously, and Jesus is saying, you know, there's like we believe in moral absolutes, and, you know, there are things that we stay away from, we don't do. Like, Christians are serious people. If Maybe if you're not a Christian, you think of Christians, there's a pretty common comment that Christians are maybe killjoys, or maybe God is a killjoy in the sense that, you know, he's always trying to stop people from having fun. This story tells us the very opposite. Jesus is the guy that you want at your party. He's the one who brings life to the party. He's the one who saves a party that's about to die. Part of the... the wisdom of waste seems to be this joyful partying atmosphere that Jesus is going to bring. So that's story number one. Story number two, another situation, another time. It's not a wedding this time, it's a picnic. Um, Jesus, he's um, sent his closest disciples out on a short-term mission, short-term missions trip. So they're going out two by two. They are um, doing all the kinds of things that Jesus himself was doing in his earthly ministry. He, um, so they are teaching, um, teaching people about God, that calling people to repent, that is turn back to God, and, he, and they're um, doing some miracles like they're healing the sick and, and casting out demons as well. They're all excited about how they're able to do all the things that Jesus is doing. They all come back to Jesus and he says, it's time to have a rest. And so they get into a boat to just be away by themselves on the other side of the lake 
for a little while. But, you know, Jesus is kind of really popular at this point. He's like, um, I don't know, maybe it's like Taylor Swift, you know. If anyone sees Taylor Swift on the streets, like, immediately, it's going to be on Twitter, X, you know, it's going to be on, you know, Snapchat, it's going to be on Telegram, it's going to be on WhatsApp, it's going to be on all of these different things. Like, that's what's happening to Jesus. The message is getting around on social media, except they didn't have social media, they just called it talking to each other. So they, <laughs> they're telling each other about Jesus, and what happens is they run to the place where Jesus is going on the boat. They go just run around the side of the lake, and they get there before he does. And there's so many people there that when Jesus and his friends, they arrive on the other side of the lake, there is a huge crowd of people already there at the arrival gate waiting for now they, um, you know, Jesus looks at them, and the phrase that uh, Mark tells us that he that he uses for description of what Jesus thinks at this point is he looks at them and he says they're like sheep without a shepherd, and that is quite remarkable, because what he's saying is, like, you know, we think that we're in control, that we own and control our lives, that we. Um, you know, we are the ones who provide for ourselves, who defend ourselves, protect ourselves. And Jesus' view is quite different to that. He says that we're sheep, that we need not just each other, but we need someone to look after us. We need someone to provide for us. We need someone to defend and protect us. Um, you know, I think maybe the equivalent that we might say that's more familiar to us is that we're like stray cats, stray dogs, you know, like there's, we're meant to be domesticated, we're meant to have care, and it's kind of ugly and not great when you see a dog or a cat or a sheep that doesn't have someone to care for them and look after them. Jesus has compassion on these people who he's calling sheep without a shepherd. And so, you know, even though they don't get the rest that they were hoping for, he's teaching them, and they're just standing around, they're all listening to him, and he's teaching them for such a long time that it starts to get late. And it's so late that the disciples say, we need to send everyone into the villages and the farmland that's around so that they can get some food. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. The disciples are looking at this huge crowd. There's thousands of people there. And they say, you have any idea what you're asking us to do, Jesus? Do you know how much money it would take to feed this many people? Well, Jesus just says to them, how much food do you have? They go and inquire and have a look. And turns out they have five loaves, five bits of bread, and two fish. You might know this story. Jesus takes what they have, the five loaves and two fish, and he gives thanks to God for them, and then he starts breaking the bread and giving it to his disciples to give out to the people who were there. And they're all sitting down in groups of 100 and groups of 50, and the disciples are taking these bits of bread from Jesus, and they're trying to give it out to everyone. They give out so much bread that everyone who's there is able to eat and be satisfied and then they leave bits of broken bread or just on the grass. 
And the disciples come around and they pick up all the broken bits of bread and the fish and they fill up 12 basketfuls. Now, what is this story telling us about waste? If you are concerned about food waste, this is not the story for you. Because Jesus, he's not measured. He just produces more than is necessary. Once again, he's not, he's not, he's not worried about optimization. He's not worried about efficiency. He's just providing and providing and providing and providing to the point that there's wasted food on the ground afterwards. Well, you know, this story makes us think about Jesus and who he is, but it also makes us think about who we are. You know, are we like stray dogs and cats and sheep without a shepherd? Is that the way that we think about ourselves? But if that is who we are, then part of what this story tells us is that Jesus is more than able to provide for our needs. Now, the third story is the one that we read um, just, um, just now. Uh, there's, uh, we had a wedding, we had a picnic, now we have family dinner. And family dinner, uh, Jesus is, um, is staying in a town that's near, um, near Jerusalem, it's called Bethany. He's at the home of uh, friends that he knows, and his disciples are there, and, uh, and there's the other family that's there as well. And during the meal, there's a woman who comes up with, um, she, it's called, um, uh, it's a perfume that's called nard. Nard comes from a plant that's grown in India. So you can imagine that it's very expensive to extract this ointment from this plant that's grown in India, imported all the way into where they are in Israel and Jerusalem. And uh, what, we're, what the disciples actually say in this passage is that it would have cost over a year's wages for one bottle of perfume. This is not something that is cheap. Uh, and it's in an alabaster jar which means that it's sort of carved out of this decorative stone. What they would have done in those days is they made this bottle that has a long neck and it's like it's sealed at the top once they put the perfume in. And the way that you open it is that you basically have to break the neck of the bottle in order to pour out, pour out the perfume. The perfume gets onto Jesus' head. The smell of it is going to fill the room. Everyone knows that this has happened. And the comment that's made by the people who were there is, this is so wasteful. It's a waste of money. This, you know, we could have done so much more with it. If we had sold it, we would have got so much money. We could have given that to the poor. We could have done good things with it. And yet, Jesus says, leave the woman alone. Because what she's done is a beautiful thing. She is preparing me for my burial. And what she's done will be told in memory of her. She's done a wasteful thing from one point of view, but from Jesus' point of view, it's not wasteful at all. And I think most of us would look at what she's done and be on the side of the disciples, or be on the side of those who are saying, that was not a good use of that asset that investment, you know, that um, potential source of funds. Um, 
the, the change of frame that's required for us to be able to see that as not a wasteful act, but a beautiful act, is to know what that woman has experienced. Time and time again, when people encounter Jesus and they realize that he is showing them love that they've never seen before, their whole lives have totally changed. You might know some other stories from the Bible that say this. He meets a woman at a well who's done everything wrong in life, who's been abused, who's, um, who has no status in society because of who she is. And when Jesus encounters her with both truth and compassion and love, her life is changed so that she can go to the town and tell everyone that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what's happening to this woman at the Bethany Well. She's been so changed, so impacted by Jesus' forgiveness and his love that there is nothing that is too large a price to pay. Nothing that's too much for her to return her devotion and love to him. This is the language of a lover. And that's what makes sense of flowers or of art, perhaps, as well. That it's when you're gripped by love, things that might have seemed wasteful before are no longer wasteful to you because they're expressions of something that is inexpressible and immeasurable. Now, Jesus's love for us is expressed in lots of different ways, but ultimately had to be expressed in one particular way. He produced all of this wine more than enough. He produced all of this bread more than enough. And yet just after this story of him being at family dinner, he's going to celebrate Passover with his disciples and at that Passover meal he explains that he's about to die and he uses the elements of the meal to do that he says take this bread he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples and he says take it and eat it this is my body which is broken for you he takes the wine and he gives it to his disciples and he says drink this because it is the cup of my blood, which is shed for you. Um, and ultimately, the story of the Bible is a story that says we, God loves us, and he made us, and you know we're his creatures, and he loves us, but we are not close to God. We have lost connection and relationship with God. And in our walking away, our rejection of God, something needs to happen because we desperately need to access the abundance of God. Uh, And yet when Jesus comes and he's showing us that abundance, it's going to come at a cost because the loss of the relationship requires it. The thing is that Jesus takes on the loss of the relationship for himself so that we don't have to experience it. The consequences of us saying no to God are what happened to Jesus when he died on the cross. When his body was broken and his blood was shed, shed, 
that was his way of saying, I'm taking on the consequences of our failure to have a relationship with God. And it's only because of that that we can access the abundant provision of the one who's more than able to provide, the one who is our true good shepherd, and the one who so transforms us that we can be people of love, of radical love. Um, when people become Christians, often there's, um, from an outsider's point of view, there's a wasteful thing that happens. That, you know, some of you are in families where maybe your parents don't understand why is it that you follow Jesus so much. They don't understand why you give so much time to the EU or to your church activities. Maybe they don't understand why someone would give their money to church or maybe say in my case why you might even give up your day job as an engineer in order to tell people about Jesus. These decisions look wasteful but they only make sense if we can change our frame of mind. It's not about efficiency. It's not about optimization. It's about love. And it's about beauty. It's about the beauty that God has shown us in Jesus. I'd love to answer some of your questions. And so maybe I'll just give you a moment. You can text them into the number. And if you didn't have a chance to do that, then um, I'm sure we can take some questions from the floor as well. But I'll give you just a moment to, to think while I just take a seat. seconds. Um, there are a few questions that have come already, but just in case if you want to get some more questions through. Thanks, Brian, for giving that talk. It's really insightful. I think I really liked how you said that when you experience love, something that is really inexpressible, um, it kind of changes what was once wasteful into a new perspective. So that was yeah, very interesting. One of the first questions that we did get, and I think it got answered towards the end, was a very confronting waste of a given thing can be time. How should we approach this? Things like giving up uni degrees for full-time ministry, wasting time by missing out on time with friends and family doing mission. I think you answered that towards the end about how it's it, a change of perspective or change of how you're looking at it. But if you wanted to expand on that a bit yeah, more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, if you are thinking about, you know, maybe you are in a position where you, you're convinced by Jesus, and you think, I, like, not only am I committed to following him, but also, you know, I want to make it my ambition to tell other people about him. I think that's really valuable work to do. And I'm worried about wasting my degree, wasting my uh, 
uh, you know, training and all that kind of thing, then you should come along to Project 200 conference, <laughs> which is in a couple of weeks' time, and uh, and you know you, you should be able to find out from your e-faculty about that. Um, that's sort of, especially if you're, you know, a Christian. If you're, you know, just trying to wrestle with why someone would even even go, go there, I think it is. It's a question about saying, have you really been been gripped by God's love? And for many people, that is like unmistakably true that you know that is the thing that's driving them and I think if you haven't had that experience of saying like I really understand that because God loves me there's nothing that I can ever give up that wouldn't be um, um, what's the right word um, you, um, that would be inappropriate in the light of what I've received then um, you know I I think I really want to in, encourage you to keep investigating, keep asking questions about Jesus because that is actually the claim of of the scriptures. Um, this there's another story Jesus tells. Um, it's a very very short parable. He says um, the kingdom of God is like treasure that's hidden in a field, and when a man finds the treasure, he covers it up and sells everything that he has, and in his joy he buys the field. And that's the picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus, that it's so precious when you really know that there's treasure there, it's worth it, more than worth it, even if you have to give up everything for it. And so that's the picture that I think is, is there in the woman as well, that she, she is, like she's given up so much, but it's worth it because of the one that she knows that she has. Yeah. So basically from a perspective Looking into Christianity might seem like looking into a bin, but when you look into the <laughs> bin, there's actually like a diamond inside. Right. Is well, that... yeah, exactly. Yeah, Thanks it would feel like super wasteful to be yeah. know, diving into a dumpster if you didn't know that there was something there. Yeah. I've got another question. Um, this question is: Would so this is on um, what we looked at. I'll... Um, would she have known um, that Jesus, would she have known about Jesus' death? Um, I thought the disciples were all pretty clueless when it mm. came to that. So was she really preparing him for burial or just as an expression of love? Sounds like Jesus is looking too much into it. <laughs> well, Jesus is reinterpreting it, is what I would say. That you know, I doubt that the woman knew that Jesus was about to die, even though he had said multiple times up to this point to all of his disciples and those who might be eavesdropping, you know, the Son of Man is going to die, he's going to be handed over to the chief priest, be, suffer, be killed, rise on the third day. He predicts his own death and resurrection at least three times in the Gospel of Mark, and um, he does that in all the Gospels, and... Um, and so he knows that that's what, where he's going. He very much knows from the way that he conducts the, the Passover meal, the Last Supper, that he is going to die the very next night, or the, the, well, like within that night. And, um, and, uh, and, and that's the whole thrust of the Gospels, is Jesus walking toward his death you know, in Jerusalem at the hands of the chief priests and the other um, and the Roman governor. So 
Jesus has it in mind the whole time. He is telling his disciples about it, but the questioner is right to ask the question because they, you know, <laughs> basically, especially the men, like, have no idea, right? All the apostles of Jesus have just don't get it until after the fact. The thing is that Jesus takes this moment of her just pouring out this expression of love for him, and he says, that is so appropriate at this moment because I'm about, I'm just dead, you know, two days away from my own death. It's like a burial anointing. And, um, and he sees a fittingness to it that, you know, she, she, I guess you would say that she's acting better than she knows. Um, and so we can still say that she's driven by her experience of his love and they'll really only understand what he's talking about in that burial after, you know, he dies and rises again. Thanks for that, Brian. I think similar to like this question, I think it's a good link to what you just said. Um, will we ever be able to express or return the overabundant love and provision that God has given us? Uh, if you want to give back to God and be I guess a, a, a fair <laughs> a return for what he's given to us, it's not possible. Um, you know, there, there is an asymmetry to our relationship with God, which means that we are always, from beginning to end, the Bible's word for this is grace. That God gives us much more and much better than we deserve. That is true if, you know, just from the way that he's created a world so abundantly, he's provided for us every day, he's given us families and friends to, you know, to be around us and so on. We didn't earn that stuff. You know, we didn't work for it. We don't deserve it just because of who we are. God gave it to us as a gift. But the other side of that is that, you know, not only... Do we just not bring anything to the table to, to earn those things? But also, we've walked away from God as well. That, you know, our problem of sins that we've rejected God. And what's the right response? What's God's right response to us rejecting Him? He ought to reject us. And the fact that He hasn't, the fact that He's given us a way forward, the fact that Jesus died so that we can be forgiven is so much more an expression of God's grace. Again, grace on top of grace. And so um, the, the undeserved gift of God is not something that we should even try to repay. I mean, sometimes we, can, we might use that language just to, to, to talk about how you know, we can never repay the love of God. I mean, that's sure. Um, uh, I think it's sufficient to say, you know, it's the right response for us to, to say, God, you, um, you know, you deserve every part of me, you know, like that. Whatever you want me, want of me, you know, is not too much of you to ask. Um, and in God's graciousness, he also gives us freedom to make those, um, you know, responses to him, uh, you know, out of thankfulness and love. Thanks, Brian. Um, I've got one more question. Um, if you guys do have a few more, I'll just put this back up. But 
this is probably the last question. Um, this might be tangential to the topic, but when you mentioned how Jesus referred to us as sheep, how does that relate to how Jesus himself is referred to as the Lamb of God? Yeah, yeah. Bible, the Bible authors, they love mixing their metaphors. And so, you know, Jesus is a stone. He's a sheep. He's a gate. He's a, you know, he's the door. He's the um, light of the world and so on. And so, like, even just to talk about that one person, let alone all the other metaphors that the Bible uses, and so at one point, yes, he's the shepherd of the sheep. At another point, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he's talking, when um, John says, you know, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is talking about Jesus as a sacrifice. Um, and so in the Old Testament context, you give animal sacrifices, um, well, at least one of those sacrifices will be an atonement for sin. That is, it's a way for us to come back into relationship with God is in repentance and in faith to sacrifice an animal that symbolically takes away our sin. And um, and so that is the image that the, the New Testament keeps giving about what Jesus did when he died, was he was a sinless animal. He did, not, did nothing wrong. He didn't deserve his own death. Why did he die? He died in our place. He was sacrificed so that we, we could be forgiven. Thanks for that, Ryan. Um, we do have one more question, actually, and I think it is related to what you just said. Um, is it a waste for us as lost sheep and untrained animals to receive grace and forgiveness? Is there a point to giving us what he has given us? I think you've kind of answered that already, but if there's anything else you want to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. God is a God of love. And and the language and the, and the actions of love are, are not best analyzed in the frame of, you know, what is wasteful or not, what is efficient or not. Um, you know, if you're only looking at what is fair and what is efficient, then God wouldn't have created the world in the beginning. He wouldn't have given us a freedom to, you know, to um, to disobey him, and he wouldn't have uh, he wouldn't have saved us. He would have just gone. You know what? Easier for him, definitely easier for him if he didn't have to send his own son to die <laughs> for for our forgiveness. He could just like scrap this plan A didn't work to start with plan B, or just not have plan A in the first place. And so the explanation for why God does what He does is because He's a God of love. He's a God of abundance. He's a God who makes things not because it's a good idea for him. Like he's in, you know, like God is fully satisfied in himself. He doesn't need an external party to make him happy. The reason why he does it is because he, he just is the kind of person he wants to share. And so the fact that we get to share in that is for our benefit, you know? And I mean, it, like, and it just shows us the kind of God that He is. Thanks, Ryan. Sorry, I keep saying this is the last question, but everyone <laughs> seems so keen to ask questions. So I have one more question, and this will unfortunately be the last question, even if you have more, because we are running out of time. So a very quick one: knowing it is impossible to give a fair return to God, do you think this would discourage people into thinking doing God's work 
is just a waste of our time. Really discourage people thinking that doing God's work is a waste of our time. Knowing that um, it's impossible to give a fair return back to God. So is everything oh, that we're doing right now, would that just be a waste if we, if it's impossible for that to be? Yeah, no, I think it's not so much saying it's impossible to do anything good. <laughs> I'm not saying it's impossible to do good in the world. It's impossible to do fair by God, right? So if you're just trying to say, you know, God has, you know, contributed $10, I contribute $10, then, like, the, the problem with that is God hasn't contributed $10, he's contributed $10 billion, and we don't have that, you know? We can't earn that in 10 billion, well, 10,000 lifetimes, <laughs> right? We just, it's not, a, it's, it's not a fair comparison to say that, oh, we can somehow contribute at the level that God can contribute. But in God's grace, he says, actually, you can be part of my work. Like, if you are someone who's received grace, then you are someone who can give that same grace to others. And that's going to show in, you know, the smallest act, giving a cup of water to someone, and it's going to show in bigger things as well. And so, yeah, those things, yeah, they are valuable, they're good, they just in no way earn, you know, or, or make or, or repay. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.